does it tell us about life? What does it tell us about family? It's very complicated. And we are complicated people. There's a brand of selfishness that sometimes we must do, you know, just to make it through our, our own lives. Grabbing those moments, it doesn't have to be a war. It could be those little every day or during the minutes of the day, the conflicts that come up. But we're just trying to just make it. There's so many things that we learn from when people reveal private moments. And uh, a lot of our guests have revealed a lot. Coming up on the Janice Adams Show, before you go, centenarians and the stories of their lives. I'm Janice Adams. As journalist, historian, author, race and gender glass ceiling breaker, I wanted to do a show that would nurture our spirits, fuel us for the days ahead, to help us make that way out of no way through these trying times. I wanted to do a show about race, every race, and courage. A show where you and I meet public figures we want to know more about and neighbors from whom we hear too little. Voices, perspectives, insights we simply need to hear. I love the fact that one critic said of my work, Janice Adams gives us vitamins for the soul. Well, with this episode of the podcast, here's a dose for your day. Hi, I'm Janice Adams. Welcome to the show. With us today are Nicole Franklin and Bryant Monte, producers and co-hosts of an extraordinary podcast series, Before You Go. Now, lurking in the background of that title is the taboo subject of death. But Before You Go is without question about life. Stories about life and living from the vantage of those who, it could be said, know more about the subject than most of us ever will. Centenarians, people who've achieved or are nearing their 100th birthdays. What do they have to tell us about life, about living long and living well? Given the chance, what would you want to pass on as your stories of a lifetime? I asked Nicole Franklin and Bryant Monte to give us a sense of the show by sharing a clip from one of their favorite interviews. Oh, we love talking to our super seniors, as we've been calling them. So you were about to hear from um, episode three, actually, when we talked to someone who was 104 when we met, Miss Glendora Hubbard. And uh, we used episode three to weave in and out of her story and give our love of, of why we even started this series too. So it's kind of our more informative episode as well as so colorful with um, her story. Um, I uh, did ask her because, come on, you're born in 1917 as a Black woman. I asked her to set up this clip if she had known relatives who had been enslaved. Do you know your grandparents? Were they enslaved? Are you... My grandmother was a slave, yes. Where? In Tennessee. And my aunt, who was a school teacher, she was a slave, and she had two children by her slave owner and two by her real husband. The two that she had by the slave owner one was my dad, and one was my Aunt Daisy. 
which gives you an idea of what they were working with. The other two amounted to nothing. One was a drunkard, and the woman did not put too much of anything. But my dad and my Aunt Daisy made something of themselves. Like I said, them freeing the slaves was important because my grandmother was sweet. And strangely enough, my other grandmother was not a slave. She was very fair. Miss Hubbard, when you have something like this, this gold mine of a woman, 104, quick question, had anybody interviewed her before? Not that I know of. Um, she's actually our CMO, our, our marketing director's great aunt. <laughs> and from the excitement that Cynthia, our marketing director, Cynthia Wagner, had from just somebody wanting to. And then Ms. Hubbard, kept, she kept saying, we cut it out of the episode, but she kept saying, do you really want to hear this? Do you really want to hear this? Do you really want to hear this? <laughs> and okay, so then how did you come to the idea of doing this at all in the first place? <laughs> well, I'll let Brian start with how much we love old people. <laughs> Oh, love old people, because I want to be old, too. <laughs> we both, um, as journalists and working in this uh, space, I think one day you were talking about a story, Brian, that you had done on a 100-year-old, um, somebody celebrating their birthday. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I love talking to 100-year-olds. You're like, I do, too. And I kept that in the back of my head. So I was preparing to do a short film on a friend's granddaughter's piano teacher. A friend and I were having lunch and she was asking how my mother was doing. And I was like, oh, my mom is doing great, actually. She's busier than ever. You know, my mom um, of a certain age and she has 24 piano students. She's like 24. She sounds like my granddaughter's piano teacher. She's 100 year years old and has 90 piano students. I was like, excuse me? <laughs> I said, wait a minute, 90 piano students right now? She said, yes. And then I said, has she ever been interviewed? She said, I don't think so. And I was like, I have to meet her. And so I called her on the phone. I had our friend introduce us and she was lovely. And she's giving me all these stories. Um, she's actually um, here from St. Kitts, which... Um, might be a bit familiar wow. to me. <laughs> that is that is yeah. my family stomping ground. There you go. So she moved here um, at three years old, has an incredible origin story, especially um, coming here as a child was treacherous. And then um, growing up was really rough. But the piano was her friend. She's telling me bits of this on the phone. And then she says, so I guess we should meet to see if you want to interview me. Come on, my mind was made up. I went to her house, had all the camera equipment, lights, everything. Mm -hmm. I interview her. And then I got the full interview, you know, um, four hours. <laughs> She's just talking. She's amazing. And then um, a little thing called a pandemic hit. Thus, you cannot be around, you have children around your piano teacher at this point. I can't be around her. But the audio stuck with me. And I was sharing with Brian. I was like, you know, the woman I told you I interviewed, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't get her stories out of my head. I think she's a podcast. In fact, we should do the podcast. We both love 100-year-old people. <laughs> yeah. And not hesitate. Of course not. Yeah. That is not as extraordinary. Please, Bryant. No, I was just going to say, I think it's um, so much you can learn from people who have lived through so much. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the joy that, you know, that we both have to uh, interview people that have really experienced a lot in life and and some of the challenges that they endured and overcame. And it just gives you hope in that sense of 
well, if they can do it, maybe I can do it too. And, and so many things that we learn and glean from people who have experienced so much. And I've always loved that, you know, from talking to, you know, grandparents and great grandparents. Uh, so this is just a carryover to so many things that I love about history and, and people's lives and, and how we can learn, not just from a textbook, but from a living, a living example, you know. So let's hear a clip from Miss Carol. Yes, um, as I mentioned, Miss Carol's story was quite treacherous on the way here. But when she got here, and I'm saying here, meaning the States, she ended up in New Jersey. She was three. What's so wild, and I still can't get my head about around it, is that her father um, and parents in St. Kitts had a number of children, I believe seven children. She was the last of the seven. And so her aunt, her father's sister, in New Jersey said, I'm going to need someone to take care of me when I'm older. Can you send me one of the children to be my own? And he did. So that's how she ended up in Jersey, very young age. And unfortunately, and Miss Carol tells all, she tells all, mm. it was an extremely abusive relationship. The woman was so abusive to her. In this clip, this is just uh, on the surface, she goes deeper in the actual episode. This is just on the surface, and it's just some of the terrible, um, specific forms of abuse that her aunt slash mother used. If she had a knife in her hand and she was running, I was in the way. Even if I was sitting in a chair, so I caught the blunt of it, body was scored. If she was boiling water on the stove and she meant to throw it at him, it ended on my body. I, I could tell stories that haven't been shown in movies yet. But I found a friend. My friend was at piano because being alone when the parents were home and the fighting started, I couldn't play the piano. I had to just sit while the turmoil was going on. That is quite a story, you know, and I'm listening to it and she talks about the turmoil and what was going on. When you get speak with people like this and someone who goes into their personal story that way you know we often speak of history and we act as though it's these grand themes instead of the fact that what is true is that it is what each and every one of us chooses to do each and every day it's a matter of then which which of those stories we record so what does this that story the fact that she comes at such a young age, and I think, frankly, there's something very telling about someone who is deciding that to send me one of your children because I need someone to take care of me when I'm older, that should be, you know, a flag to, to begin with. But beyond that, what does it tell us about life? What does it tell us about family? What does it tell us about Black families? At that time, it's very complicated. And we are a complicated people. Everybody um, is. <laughs> everybody is. Yeah. I had a dear friend, a filmmaker you may know, Bill Gunn, and he used to say, 
everybody is some kind of freak. So I won't go quite, quite that far. But I mean, everybody is complicated. <laughs> That's I. Who knows having the aunt be here in Jersey as someone who's a product of the Caribbean herself who needed um, that family connection, something, right? Because she could have adopted, right? There's enough children here. And so you rely on family. She did not allow Miss Carol to see any of her siblings, even when they came to visit as adults. She cut that off because Miss Carol, again, was the youngest. So to see an older brother and sister who were living not far away, that was not allowed. It was never allowed for her to have any friends or anything. So um, while you were describing um, what, you know, our, our complexities, I'm thinking, well, there's a brand of selfishness that sometimes we must do just to have, you know, just to make it through our, our own lives, <laughs> you know. But when it affects others, that's you sometimes crying out, you know, I need I need love. And this is a woman, apparently, according to Ms. Carol, was married to a, a fantastic human being. Her husband, her odd husband was a musician and just a dear. So she said it was never the stepfather who had anything bad, ill will or anything. It was always the mother. And then you get into a whole tragic mulatto situation because apparently her aunt could pass. And uh, maybe that's just um, the way society viewed her was always something that she had to battle with inside. I mean, there's, like I said, we're very complicated people. And, <laughs> and so, um, but yeah, I really like what you said, Janice, grabbing those moments. It doesn't have to be a war. It could be those little every day or during the minutes of the day, the conflicts that come up where we're just trying to just make it. You know, there's so many things. And then like Brian was saying that, that we learn from. Uh, when people reveal private moments and uh, a lot of our guests have revealed a lot. So, <laughs> and, and she goes on with, with this story to talk about her aunt on her deathbed. Let's hear that for a moment. But on her deathbed, I was there. She, for the first time, love never came out of her mouth even on the deathbed, but I held her hand because I knew she was dying. And she, first time, she said, I'm sorry. And I regret to now, I couldn't say it was all right. I wish I could have said, Mom, it's all right. I couldn't say it. I I just couldn't answer. Complicated is is there better is there a bigger word? <laughs> Complicated. It definitely is. When we come back, more here on the Janice Adams Show with our guests Nicole Franklin and Bryant Monte, producers of the podcast series Before. Before you go, more after the break. 
We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with our guests, Nicole Franklin and Bryant Monte. They are the creative team behind the podcast series, Before You Go, a series of interviews in which centenarians recall the stories of their lives, the stories of our country, society, cultural heritage, rarely revealed snapshots of what it means to be an American. We have been listening to centenarians with the subject lurking in the background with that title, Before You Go. But we're not going to go to the go part. We're going to go to the B part because that is what this series is about. It is about these people. We, you know, we put a number on each other's heads. Life doesn't necessarily put a number because, but it does put age on our heads. Um, and these are people living their lives. Right, right. Some don't feel their age. <laughs> but, you know, yeah, some, well, I, I told you I had an uncle who was 102 uh, when he died, or he lived to be 102. And I went out to visit him with my grandmother, his baby sister, because we got a call from him one Saturday morning, sister, I'm dying. And she was just, what to do? And I said, okay, I'm going to go home for the weekend. On Monday, you and I are going to fly out to Seattle to see your brother. We got there. He himself picked us up at the airport with his wife. And he's fine. He had indigestion. <laughs> but So we we get to spend this wonderful week with him. But on the way driving from home, I mean, from the airport home, I noticed his wife was really very beautiful and um, a lovely person, too, but very beautiful. And she turns down the sun visor and to the mirror. And I'm saying, well, every time we stop, she does this and then she brings it down. She can't be that vain. You know, what is this? And so then we finally get going. And I realized that his job is to drive forward and her job is to look around the other parts. This oh, is how they drive him down the road together. And so as the, he's driving forward, he's, he's about 98, something like that. Her job is to say a little to the left ear, a little to the right a little to the right here. Now watch out to the left. That is how they drive all over a town that people in New York would appreciate when I say that the name of the town was Bellevue. <laughs> people outside New York City may not know that New York City's historic and number one hospital an insane asylum is Bellevue. So ultimately, to close out this story, we, we do go, we have a lovely time. It, we then went down to visit my grandmother's other sister and elder husband had a lovely time with the, ironically, the one who died that year was my grandmother. So it was a very appropriate trip. But to round uh, and for fortuitous indigestion, but to round out this story, we heard that Uncle Hermie, 
who really was one of the, he still is one of the scions of the um, Seventh-day Adventist Church. He is a man who opened more congregations, founded more congregations. Still, he holds the record in terms of the number of congregations he broke and his stories about living in the South and being a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. We can talk about another time, but it it is really quite a story of because the the Southern Baptists considered him a white a black cultist. Yeah, exactly. And so he was always he literally said to me, "Always sleep with one eye open, daughter." And I said, "Huh?" And he said that he he literally got to the point where he slept with a pistol under his um pillow. That was how he made it through as a young man. That said, so we talk about these stories of our lives and these centenarians and what they can tell us about where they've been and hopefully where we will not go. But I will say, just in closing of Uncle Hermie's story, that the police arrive at his door one day. And with his reputation as this venerated elder, it is the captain with all his brass and, and the captain's deputy. And they come and they say, Reverend Lawrence, as a valued member of this community, don't worry about having to drive yourself anywhere. My deputy will take you anywhere you want to go. And that was how they got Uncle Hermie and his wife off the road. And she was wife number three, because at 102, she would head out. <laughs> so, and still that's going on. I love the tag team driving. I wouldn't have thought of that. <laughs> I think that was what finally did it. <laughs> so, but I got to witness history. Um, <laughs> so anyway, but you were telling us right before the break, you were telling us about Miss Hubbard, a much sadder story. And Uncle Hermie too came to from St. Kitts to the oh, United States. Miss Carol came from St. Kitts. Oh, Miss Carol. That's right. Excuse me, Miss Carol, who you were telling us about Miss Carol and her youth, a much sadder story. Miss Carol came from St. Kitts. My granduncle, too, came from St. Kitts. Um, he was the Seventh-day Adventist first foreign student. Wow. And he came from St. Kitts. So, you know, I I feel Miss, Miss Carol and, you know, that is such a sad story. But you, is there anything else you can tell us about her? That she's an amazingly happy person, <laughs> which was so wild because it's you go through a history, a childhood, OK, a childhood like that. And you may feel I may I did not have a childhood, but she is the most gracious, loving, beautiful soul. So you can come through anything if you hear her story and passionate it up. With more than 2,000 students, piano students, wow, was her friend. The piano was her friend. So when she luckily got a chance to get on the piano, stay with lessons, go to the church, that, um, get, that was her way out of the house, was to become a part of the church um, music, music ministry, and that saved her. And so 
there's there's that sense of community. You're talking about Seventh Day Adventist, and you know she was more in the Episcopalian world and Catholic churches too. Church a- of England, a yeah. real Caribbean immigrant Church of England. Yes, and, um, you know, and then um, she did, and then she ended up there at the cathedral as well in Newark, playing for that beautiful church. Mm-hmm. She was taught how to play the organ. So music was her way out and um, beautiful memories with that. And we have beautiful music in the episodes. So we are just um, just so grateful to have met her and hear her story because then you literally can make it through anything if you <laughs> what she had to make it through. And she's such a joy. And still, I mean, she's this spry little thing that, I mean, literally it was only the pandemic that stopped her schedule. Wow. Wow. Bryant. Is there a favorite interview that you have had? They're all good. (laughs) Favorite child, I know I'm asking. (laughs) I love all my children. And I think a lot of this makes you reflect on your own life and your own family, your own experiences. And so I shared about my grandmother, Helen Mason. She started the Black Theater Troupe in Phoenix, Arizona back in 1970, still going strong today. And she told me the story about her grandmother on her dad's side how she left Texas. I don't know what part of Texas exactly, but we haven't have, we actually have the photograph of the family. So she left by herself, seven children, uh, made her way to Arizona. This is in Tucson, Arizona. So, I mean, she actually, I think she left her husband or, or, you know, the father of the kids because, you know, he had more than just one wife, I guess. (laughs) So she left, you know, my grandmother tells a story that she was very petite a very quiet woman. She would almost like tiptoe through the house because she would not want to be heard. And I guess that's part of her training and her upbringing that, you know, as a former slave to be seen, but not heard. And my grandmother also told me about how she, you know, was taking a bath, helping her with her bath and, you know, had her back was to her. And that's the first time she saw the scars on her back from being beaten as a slave. And, And I know a lot of our families have similar experiences, but I think this kind of brings up those stories that often go unnoticed because no one's asking the questions or doing these interviews. And there's so many gems out here, you know, so many stories that are so powerful. And I think, you know, our quest is to get that to the forefront, you know, to bring these stories alive, to bring them out and, you know, share with everyone to say, wow, who would have known or who would have, who would even thought that these things happened? And I think that's part of what we do as, you know, journalists and and storytellers and people that really care is to, you know, build a platform to tell these stories and to get people engaged so they can also be informed and educated and inspired, you know. And it's really fun, I think, for the guest. (laughs) Oh, yeah. You know, chance to chat. One of our um, latest guests. And I, I thought he was your favorite, Bryant. <laughs> but Nate Crump, the baseball player turned um, chemist, fantastic. He was, he's ama- he's like 100 years old, looks amazing. He looks 70. <laughs> <laughs> right. Younger. And he just, every moment, every morsel of life, you know, that he could get into, it was just so fantastic. He grew up loving baseball in any sport, right? He came up around the time where the Negro Leagues were something to aspire to. Now, he just played baseball all day, but he uh, grew up in St. Louis and got a chance to meet some of the Negro Leaguers and mm-hmm. say, 
hey, what's it like on the road? And when they told him what the conditions were going to be, he was good enough, but he decided not to join, you know, not part of the team. Let's hear a clip from Mr. Crump. So, I mean, did you have aspirations as a, as a child to say, look, I'm going to, you know, go for the pros? Pro baseball? Yes, sir. No, because at that time, there was no opportunity. In fact, when we went to Sportsman Park, we could sit in the center field bleachers or the right field pavilion. But the grandstand, we could not go. And even then, mm -hmm. our ladies were not recognized on Ladies Day to come in free. They went there and they had to pay. Mm -hmm. But they still had to sit in the various sections. So you were playing baseball for a while, and I understand you did two exhibition games. You were in two exhibition games along with the Kansas City uh, Monarchs. So you were yeah. along the lines of those Negro baseball leaguers, but you weren't actually in the league, but you played with them. No, I was not in the league because uh, when I left school, Lincoln University, there was a doctor who was just opening up a laboratory. Mm -hmm. He was African-American, and it was a special kind of laboratory, microanalysis. Wow. And I had just started working with him when I played these exhibition games with the Monarchs, and they had asked me to join the system, but I, I declined because one of the a new fellow was catching there, mm -hmm. and he told me about the kind of life that was lived. It, uh, they'd played a lot of small towns, and money was not that good anyway, but it was the idea that we could not stay in the hotels and those kinds of things and places to eat. And so uh, for that reason, I didn't think it was worth the gamble, even though I loved it. And he knew I did, too. And what position did you play, Nate? I played in the outfield. I played mostly right field in most places. Wow, strong arm. <laughs> you must have been but, fast, too. So what's the takeaway from when you hear a man speak that way? Uh, go with your gut. <laughs> no, no, he had, he had exactly. an incredibly informed decision, you know, to ask what it is really like. And and you talk about, you know, our podcast about choosing life and, and it's about, you know, a life well lived. He went on to even greater heights, you know, to become this scientist who worked on projects with McDonnell Douglas. And that is our big industry there in St. Louis and contribute to NASA projects, you know, with getting... The space shuttles up there so it was just he had a different path and he listened to his heart about it and he's an educated man anyway he loved learning so that is actually one of our longer episodes because we couldn't there was this one thing after the other because he took life by the reins you know and it just rode <laughs> did he tell you how he be, how he actually got to work for that company especially in that period of time Yes, yes. In school, when he went to Lincoln University, he was studying science. And he actually studied under Dr. Madi Taylor, who some may have heard of. Uh, this is a Black chemist who was no longer with us, but he ran the chemistry department at Howard University. I believe before that, 
he worked on the Manhattan Project, you know, a black chemist contributed to history that way. Um, it was amazing um, because that building the atomic bomb, building the atomic bomb is a monumental part of our history. It's controversial. He had the brains to, you know, answer the call and <laughs> say, yes, I can do this, you know, and it's just, I, so that was one of his professors. So there was also a man in, in town, Dr. Duguid in St. Louis, who was pretty famous for having a lab, having black mentees come into the lab and work with him on his projects, another chemist. And that's where Nate Crump would hang out. So um, people would hear about him. And so he got referred to one job um, that lasted a while in a lab. And then McDonnell Douglas, I, I think, you know, you just get a reputation for being awesome. <laughs> well, I mean, the reputation for being awesome is, is great. But there were so many prescriptions that even though you were awesome, I mean, it's like some of our famous musicians speak about what it was like to be applauded on stage and even lean a horn could not find a restroom after she came off the stage. So, you know, was told to go out the back door. So being awesome is is one thing, but actually making it day to day and being able to do your best work. Yeah, I was going to say something about Mr. Crump's uh, story. I think one thing that he saw with the baseball players is how they were treated. And he's like, well, you know, I'm not into that. How they had to a lot of times sleep in sheds and there's no hotel, not getting paid much, you know, and just the conditions that they had to, to work under. And I think that led him to, you know, the scientific field. And, and, I, and I think those experiences are amazing because we can read about it, but then, you know, hear his story. And it's like, wow, I could only imagine what it was like him being young, energetic, ready to play baseball, maybe make a career out of it. And then just based on what he saw and what these guys would tell him, the older players, you know, he wasn't ready for that. You know, he, <laughs> so I think I'm going to find, you know, my uh, income and the basis of my career in something else. And it's amazing, his story. He also said he probably wouldn't have met as amazing of a woman as he had already met uh, <laughs> to be his wife. To be his wife. Yeah, so cute. <laughs> wow. Is she still alive too? No, she passed about 18 years ago, I think he just okay. told us. But um, also with that, you know, so he had a mission, you know, when he didn't go on the road. But I think if you're in sports, I mean, Brian's into sports. <laughs> I grew up in dance. So, but you have a constitution about you too. I mean, you go in, you do the job, you're excellent at it. But you also, I think with Mr. Crump and and others, you there's some opportunity there in that and some luck, right? Being at the right place at the right time where there were programs promoting blacks in science and say, hey, look, we got to use the best right. on this mission. So and this guy's the best. And he was trained by, you know, so having those mentors in place. And true, not all of us are lucky, right? Um, and when we'll run into that discrimination, it's a wall and we turn backwards. But um, those that persevere, making education key, it's tricky. But um, yeah, at least you know, we get those stories to at least give us you know, a North Star. Yeah, I mean, and I, I don't want to be negative about it, but the exception does prove the rule. Um, because it just tells you how much talent was not allowed to flourish. How many, every time I hear this, this uh, complaint about 
I mean, it's usually relic it's usually around me the Me Too movement. But and people will say, well, is it right to cancel out that man and all get look at all he's done? And I'm saying, but what about the lives that he canceled out with his behavior? Absolutely. You know, okay, great. So he had his chance. But look at all the people who did not have a chance because of his behavior. Brian, I want to come back to something. With that story that you told about your great-grandmother, I guess it is, when it, uh, the person saw her back. Do you know, you know, the theme of, of my show is race and courage. Mm. Do you know more about her life? I know she didn't take no mess. <laughs> uh, you know, from, I mean, she had seven children. Uh, the fact that uh, probably they walked from Texas. I don't know. Cause you know, we think of wagons took them, but a lot of times people had to walk the cows if they had cows or if they had horses, not everybody's riding on the horse. We have to you know, remember that the blacks were considered property. So the right, wagons, right carried the household goods and stuff like and the that. people that and were, the people carried themselves or the that, black people had to carry themselves and often their children so uh, you know i like to take walks so i was walking with my youngest son i said could you imagine people walked like this across the country i mean they walked across the country you know it took days you know weeks you know months or whatever but you know going back to my grandmother and i think you know her always having that sense of value that she knew that she could bring something like a black theater in this sense to the city of Phoenix, Arizona, going back to her. She founded the first black theater, right? Right. Yes. First black theater. And I think it was in the region, you know, wow. Southwest region or the Western region of the United States. But, I, you know, her stories, I, I think that made a impression upon her, you know, seeing her grandmother, to endure what she endured and to have the, you know, the, the strength, if you will. And I think that carried on throughout the whole family. Her dad, that was her dad's mom, who I was speaking about, her great-grandmother, or her grandmother. And I think it's just a testimony of how things can follow in a pattern and succession to say, you know what, I remember those days my grandmother went through this, or my grandfather. And I think that leaves an impression, even Mr. Crump's son, who's a doctor, an amazing doctor that worked at the University of Chicago. We talked to, to him as well in that interview, and I was impressed because he said he did well in school because he didn't want to let his parents down, you know. And I think he saw what they did and what they provided for him, and he said, I have to be successful. And, and I think that's what we're trying to build here as a platform to say, you know what, look at this person, this story, this person, that story. Because my thing is I always want to, how can we influence the young people to care, number one, and to also be inspired uh, to live their dreams, or their hopes or aspirations. When we come back, more with our guests, Nicole Franklin and Bryant Monte, producers of the series Before You Go. More here on The Janice Adams Show after the break. I am a 28-year-old black male who enjoys reading your writing. Came the letter to my email box. I would like to request from you a reading list of recommended African-American books that will help to open my mind. Sincerely, a student of life. 
I understood where he was coming from. I knew what books had done for me, how the right books had opened my mind and opened doors. Indeed, whenever I give a talk, someone will inevitably stay behind to confide, if only I'd known, to ask, why didn't anyone tell me to say, Thank you for helping me to break through the code of silence on a vast world of experience, ideas, and possibilities. Well, that email and some of the people that I've met at those lectures inspired my list, 50 books that changed the history of African America, and you can download your free copy from my website. Just go to JaniceAdams.com, J-A-N-U-S-A-D-A-M-S.com, and click on Books and More in the menu. For more about the podcast, my books, speaking engagements, you know what to do. Visit JaniceAdams.com. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show with our guests, Nicole Franklin and Bryant Monte, producers and co-hosts of the podcast, Before You Go, a series of interviews in which centenarians recall the stories of their lives in rarely revealed snapshots of what it means to be an American. Bryant, you mentioned taking walks with your son, how many children do you have? Three. And their ages? Oldest, uh, 20, just turned 23. My daughter's 20 and my youngest is 13. Okay, so this great age group. How have they responded to the work that you're doing with be- before we go? They love it because I've always brought them on the journey, no matter what I'm doing, whether it's, you know, radio, video, TV. As I always take them with me. Even here in South Carolina, I would... um. It's funny because I took them to a Kamala Harris uh, event when she was running for the nomination for the Democratic nomination for president. And I said, you guys remember her, right? Oh, yeah, we remember. And I think these impressions or these experiences in life helps to build a sense of understanding life a little bit deeper. And hopefully, you know, that's what my mom did with me was take me everywhere and gave me a lot of exposure because I think it's one thing in the classroom, one thing that's in a book. But it's another thing to be out and actually seeing something or someone or, you know, even during these crazy circumstances we're living in, uh, still have to get out and experience life. And I think this is another vessel in which we can share these experiences and hopefully inspire young people. But, um, you know, I try to sit them down and, you know, they're very respectful. (laughs) whether or not they uh, want to pay attention or not, the story <laughs> is still going to be told. You know, because yeah. it's funny because sometimes you don't think kids are listening, you know, like, ah, oh, they're not paying attention. No eye contact. Because I was in the high school for a little while, taught um, broadcast journalism. I gave them a challenge. I said, you know, it's Black History Month. We're going to highlight black broadcasters. I don't want the common people. I don't want Oprah and, you know, some of these other people. I want the no, no one really knows about kind of broadcasters and they these kids surprised me because they went in and did some research and found people you know black broadcasters whether it's radio or tv and they found them and i said you got to present it to the class so you know the game was up and they just knocked it out the park all of them did and and i said it's funny when you push young people they they will perform no matter how much you think they're not engaged not paying attention for some reason they they 
it, it clicks for them. And that's what I hope these stories will do with a younger audience. So far, we've spoken about centenarians who are African-American, but not all your guests are African-American, are they? Right, right. Yeah. We have two guests already that we interviewed who are not. And one uh, we may have a clip from who is from South Dakota. I have never been to South Dakota, but my good friend is from there. We met in New York City and we're talking, she is from a very small town in South Dakota and came to New York City and um, did great things. And so she said, you know, my mom would be amazing. And of course, we're good friends. I always wanted to meet her mom. So um, episode four, actually, of Before You Go in season one is a call to mom from me to my friend's mom. And her mom actually at one point was the first lady of Aberdeen, South Dakota. So it's an adorable um, visit to small town life. What kind of um, experiences did you have during wartime where it, it just felt like the bottom fell out or it was shocking or you didn't know from one day to the next what was going to happen? I'll tell you one story that involves the relatives from Wilmot again. My mother's brother had seven children, six girls and one boy. And they lived in Wilmot. And during the war years, there were no jobs. There were no jobs in that little town at all. So my uncle decided his oldest daughter had gone to California. She had a good job. And she said, you've got to come out here because this was in 1944. There are all kinds of jobs out here. You can get a job out here. So my uncle piled his children into the car. They stopped in Aberdeen and picked up my twin cousins who had lived with us for two years, picked the girls up. And my father said to my uncle, well, where are you going? This is a small car. Mm-hmm. And there's all these people, these kids. And my dad said to Uncle Bertie, where, where are you? where is your spare tire? And he said, well, I don't have a spare tire. And my dad said, well, you can't make a trip like to California without a spare tire. And he said, well, I don't have one. Well, dad had a friend who owned a station um, who had, well, hopefully had a, and he went and asked the station owner if he by chance had a tire that my uncle could use to take, could have to go to California. And his friend, the owner of the gas station and the tire shop, said, I have one, one, but he will have to send it back. So he took that tire, made it to California. How on earth they ever did that? I will, I can't imagine. I cannot imagine how they did, but they got to California. They all got jobs. They all stayed in California and they were all had families and were happy in the whole and he sent the tire back. And he, <laughs> that was right. I'm I'm picturing the girl sitting in the trunk. <laughs> Nicole, Bryant has shared something in talking about his great grandmother. What about your family elders? What have you come to know? <laughs> you know, I, I guess it's the American story. So um, when I tell people I have a great-grandfather who fathered 33 children, and thus, therefore, I'm related to a heck of a lot of people, (laughs) you know? It's like, well, it probably was more common then, but yeah, it was definitely the whole town. Uh, Was related to him? 
<laughs> so it to me like you know that's kind of something that it's just familiar to me because we always had family reunions and that was hey in, in your own best interest to know who your cousins were um <laughs> so you know i have that history i have i have a history of being a black woman who would love to know more about the caucasian side because that we did not track down as easy and you know it's like oh we'll just take your last name and track that plantation okay not that easy and that um always breaks my heart because we need to know what relationships happened now those could be very ugly relationships we know that but you know history is history i would like to know i think what happened to my relatives my african-american relatives i just kind of want to know more you know about what it took for them to bring me here right you know i honor that so much and I'm so grateful. So um, we have a lot of, in being in he, coming from a family so large on both sides, my father's side and my mother's side. My mother's the one with the grandfather who had so many children, but my father had a, a, a large family too. We have some really just some people that did some amazing things, you know, in science, in the arts, you know, helping found the city of St. Louis a lot. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, you know, things like that. So that's very special. But then you have the other spectrum, you know, um, some people who got the brunt of it when it came to the law and um, and not doing so well, you know, and um, possibly giving up. Um, And that just brings you more to community. And how can you be of help and of service Um, in my immediate family? All of us are. How can we be of help and of service? And I think that's from knowing our lineage and then, of course, seeing around us how we could help. So very proud of my family. We always want to know more. And I think, you know, this series is helping me in the void that I had of not being able to talk to so many older relatives um, before they went, <laughs> you know, so. Well, in closing, I'd like to ask each of you, I, I know as when I first started at a, as a reporter at NPR, and I did, um, I opened the New York Bureau as an arts correspondent. And they said, so what's the one interview that you would really like to do now that you're here? And I said, you know, I would love to interview Paul Robeson. The irony of it is that the first story I covered was Paul Robeson, but I covered his funeral. So I'm going to ask, he died the very first week I started. I'm going to ask each of you, who is the one person that you know that you will not get to interview because they have gone. But what would who would that person be and what would you like to know about them or to have known about them? One comes to mind for me. Um, I wish I had this chance. You know, I worked with the New York Times on the broadcast side some years ago and as a part of a management training program called LEAP um, and Part of the program was to shadow someone, and I, my desire was Ed Bradley to to be able to shadow him. Yeah. Um, I didn't get that chance, but it's <laughs> And what did you want to ask Ed? So many things. I mean, just the way, in terms of his example, how he was as a you know a journalist, but as a as a one who had a, a, a lot of backbone. It looked like to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, he was no nonsense, but then he had that sense of humor part about him too. You could tell in some of his clips. Um, 
you know, I just would ask him, what's it really like, you know, day to day? What's it like 60 minutes? You know, I mean, that's a high achievement in itself, but just how, uh, seemed like his life was very mixed because he loved New Orleans, loved jazz, um, you know, traveled the world, yeah. you know, telling these stories and, mm-hmm. you know, investigating and finding things that, um, you know, now we'll look at it and it's like, well, that's so long ago. It's so old school. Now we got the internet. Now we got our, our phones, you know. But, you know, what what he had to endure, I can only imagine, you know, being the only black on that particular show at the time. Um, just what that experience was like and how he got to that level and what what advice would he give, you know, those kinds of things. Um, and yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead, I'm done. <laughs> no, I was just going to say, and Nicole, have you thought of anything? Oh, yes. Well, I thought of um, Ida B. Wells for sure. Um, and what would I ask her? <laughs> now that gave me time to think about it. You know, where did you keep your gun? <laughs> Under my pillow. No. <laughs> she knew Uncle Hermie. <laughs> I think that is a wonderful place to end this story. But it also tells, I asked you that question because here you are, you know, giving us so much with these stories. But the story you didn't get is also the story of what will be lost if you don't do what you do. And so I thank you both for doing what you do and for sharing it with us and to bringing it to us. And thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. My thanks to our guests, producers and co-hosts of the podcast. Before you go, Nicole Franklin and Bryant Monte. My thanks to them and to you for joining us here on the Janice Adams Show today. For more about our guests, their work, and clips from Before You Go, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. That's J-A-N-U-S, Adams.com. The Janice Adams Show is produced in cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole and Patricio Rabio. This has been a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved.